Well, good day, Baylor Church. Your time is so precious. Do not let me waste it. Because I could spend 30 minutes wasting your time this morning. But it's up to you. In fact, Jesus, in the most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, he says there's some people that listen to the teachings of Jesus, and all they do is listen, and they don't put it into practice. And it's as if they've built their house on sand, and when the storms of life come, that house will come crumbling down. Don't let me waste your time. Don't just let me talk and not let it translate to a next step for you. Jesus says there's other types of people who hear the teachings of Jesus and they consider it and they take it in. Don't just hear it, but they actually practice it. They do it. They incorporate it in their life. You're wasting your morning if all you do is listen. And I can't be more clear or more forceful to say that I waste your time as a pastor if I somehow give the impression that by just listening to these words, your life's going to change. It's not. And it gives this false sense of security. Oh, I got filled up. There was this cool little illustration. I love this. I'm good now. And I've wasted so much of my life listening to some phenomenal sermons. I've listened to uh, teachers and preachers and read books. And I've studied scripture. I've wasted so much of my life just saying, oh, I love that. I love hearing that. And I live a different way. Follow my example and don't waste your life just listening to God's word. Walk it out. Live it out. And so you'll notice inside the bulletin, if you open it up, there's actually some next steps that you can take. And we just give these as an offering to you. You might have some different next steps that you feel like God is calling you. But as you open that up and as you see those things, perhaps that's the next step that you're going to take to walk out God's word today. Or maybe by the end, you might say, this is my next step. And you fill in whatever that is. But don't leave here today without actually incorporating just one thing that you can walk out of this sanctuary today or watching online today that you can put into practice. All right, why don't we open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, a short section of Scripture. And as you hear these words, just consider prayerfully saying, God, how do you want me to practice this? What do you want me to incorporate into my life as I go into my life this week? So 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it's on page 929 in your pew Bibles. And I'm going to read this short section, and it is a word for us today. Not only was it written thousands of years ago, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so it transcends space and time and all of eternity. Scripture says about itself that even though heaven and earth will pass away, God's word will always remain. So hear these words in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This, my friends, is the reading of God's Word. All right, now you've got those uh, bulletins open. Some of you bring note books or journals, and some of you take notes in your mind, but I just want to organize uh, this morning around these three things. Uh, first is this, the presence of God's glory. Second, the back of God's glory. Three, the front of God's glory. There was this article that came out a number of years ago uh, that actually asked the question, when you think about modern history, what one moment was like a fork in the road moment that really changed the course of modern human history? So a lot of thinkers, you know, gave their ideas, and the one that was voted as the most uh, significant just moment that changed the course of modern history came from, uh, 
Ken Burns, you know, that famous documentary filmmaker, and he, and he says this, oh, it was that moment on June 28, 1914. You know what happened, right? A carriage driver, this is like before cars, you know, uh, a carriage driver took a wrong turn. And Ken Burns says, that moment, that wrong turn changed the course of modern history more than any other moment before it or after it. Well, Drew, I take wrong turns all the time, and I've seen you drive, and you take wrong turns all the time. You know, what, what, what's the big deal with a wrong turn? Well, that carriage driver was driving Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke of Austria. Took a wrong turn, ended up in a dead-end cul-de-sac. The would-be assassin was able to catch up and assassinate Franz Ferdinand. The first of a number of events that caused a domino effect that led to World War I and World War II where more human beings lost their lives than any other of the wars before it. How much has the world changed? Because a carriage driver took a wrong turn. You know, there's those moments throughout Scripture as well. It seems like there's this fork in the road where things could go a number of different ways. And I want us to go back in time for a little bit to the book of Exodus. And we're going to see one of those fork-in-the-road moments in biblical history, which is also human history. This is a historical event. And as you go to Exodus 33, how many of you were here uh, last week when Pastor Mike Morgan preached? Anybody here? Can we just give thanks for Mike? He's back there with Rebecca and some friends. Man, what a gift that was, Mike. Now, how many of you online right now uh, listened to um, Mike's message last week? You know... I say that because 15,000 people every month uh, join our services online. And there's people here visiting, there's people traveling, there's people from uh, as far as China that join our services. And you've you got to know that beyond what you can see are people who are experiencing the ministry here. And so, Mike, again, I just want to thank you for your faithfulness. But I'm reminded of that because you had us kind of go back and forth. Remember that? So why don't you keep... Uh, actually, let's take the thumb out. We were tired from that last week. So let's just go. Let's go to Exodus 33. But I just want you to hold it open and listen while I just set this, this scene up, this, this critical fork in the road moment in human history. Uh, right before Exodus 33, just keep it open there, some very significant events have just happened. God rescues the nation of Israel from Pharaoh. After 430 plus years of slavery, he rescues them. He promises them, I'm going to make you a nation, a people. I'm going to take you to a place that I call the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Trust me, it is better than it sounds. And I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And the world is going to see and experience what I promised all the way to Abram so many centuries ago. And so God delivers them in this most dramatic fashion. Out of Egypt, out of slavery, parts the Red Sea. They're off in the desert, and they come to this place at the base of Mount Sinai. And Moses, he goes up to the mountain to meet with God, to be present with God. And time goes on. The nation of Israel gets restless. And so what do they do? They take their jewelry. They take their gold. They melt it down, and they make a golden calf. They invest their wealth and their energy and their focus and their time in this new thing, and they say, this thing, this is the Lord. This is the one who rescued us from Egypt. And you can picture maybe Charlton Heston coming down off the mountain. Whatever you picture coming off the mountain, Moses comes off the mountain, sees this thing, and all of a sudden God looks at Moses and he says something. 
And he says something to Moses that the whole of the nation of Israel can hear. He says, this is not going to work. So here's what I'm going to do. God makes an offer to Moses and the nation of Israel in Exodus 33. He says, you know what? You can go to the promised land. And you know what? I'm going to send an angel ahead of you, and they're going to destroy all of your enemies. And you're going to get to that land. You're going to get all the promises, all the blessing, all the inheritance, all the good. But I'm not going with you. And God offers to Moses what every American wants. Wealth, security, economic power, military power, political power, without having to deal with a relationship with God. And God offers it. You see, most people in our country live that way. God, I want all your blessings. I want you to answer my prayers. I, I want you to fix my, my relationships. I want you to bless me in, 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 my, in my work and all those things. But do I really have to, like, do this relationship thing? And so some people, especially if they've grown up in the church, they live with that guilt because what they want, what they want, and not God. But God here is offering to the nation of Israel, I will give you all the blessings, but you don't need me as the blesser. I'm going to give you all the inheritance, but you don't need to deal with me anymore. I'm going to give you it all, but I'm not going to go with you. And maybe some of you or maybe some people that you know might say, Moses, tell me you took that deal. I mean, that's a deal. You're going to get all the goods that God offers, and you don't have to deal with him? What does Moses say? Well, let's see. Let's open it up. Let me read that section, and we'll hear what Moses says. Verse 1 of Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, Go leave this place, you and the people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, and go to the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God is offering. Go get it. But if you're going to act like this, if you're going to forget so quickly that I am the one that rescued you, if you're going to forget so quickly that I am the one who, who rescued you, who gives you hope, who gives you a future, if so quickly you forget, then, then go. Take the blessing, but I'm not going with you. How does Moses respond? Take a look at verse 12. Skip ahead. Verse 12, Moses says to the Lord, See, you have said to me, Already bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, God, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people, God. This isn't just a group of people. This is your people. You said before, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, 
Moses says to God, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, God, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. And he makes a decision in that moment that gets at the heart of what it means for us to be human. He makes a decision in that moment that actually taps into the reason why you and I have been created. He makes a decision in that moment that actually gets to the heart of really what it means to thrive on this planet. He gets to the heart of actually the very thing that is going to give hope to this world, give hope to your family, give hope to your neighbors, give hope to even yourself. What does he do? He says, there's nothing that I want more than your presence. He goes so far to say that it is better if we die than to miss out on you being with us. Moses says, you can take the blessings, you can take the land, you can take all the wealth, you can take all the things that you promised, and you'll deliver. If I don't have you, I've got nothing. And in that moment, he lives into the very truth of what it means at the very beginning of the Westminster Catechism. How many of you have ever heard of that thing? The Westminster Catechism, this, this ancient, amazing set of truths and confessions. And at the very beginning of all of it, it says, this is why we exist, to simply glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, you've heard me say that the word glory in the Hebrew language, which by the word is the word kabod, uh, the word glory in the Hebrew language, you've heard me say it means weight or significance or gravity or, or matter. Uh, to glorify God is to say, God, you know, you matter more than anything else. To glorify God says, God, you know what? You are so weighty and significant and the gravitational pull I've been caught up in so that you are the center of my focus, my energy, my resources. You are at the core of my existence. And Moses lives into the Western, Westminster Catechism when he says, kill me if I don't get your presence. And what's so significant about that moment is it actually is a fork in the road moment that changes the course of human history because God responds. I mean, this is amazing. God is offering to Moses and the people this thing, and Moses says, no, I want you. And so what does God say? Take a look. Exodus 33, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, all right, I will do the very thing that you have asked. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. But just pause right there. God has just offered all the blessings on the planet. He says, but I'm not going to go with you. Moses says, no, you are my treasure. You are my everything. You are my life. You are my eternity. You are my identity. I want you more than anything else. And he chooses that over everything else. How many of you... Do the same on a daily basis. In your decision-making, how many of you say, you know what, God, what is more important than anything else is that you're with me. You don't do that. I don't do that in every decision. 
Can you relate to me for a moment? God, what's, what's best for my family? In that moment, I am glorifying my family. It's so subtle. Follow me here. When I say, you know, God, what's best for my family? Or I don't even start it with God. I just say, what's best for my family? I've moved the status of my family, the health of my family, the security of my family, the peace of my family at the center of my universe. I am giving weight to that, significance to that, gravity to that. That's what I'm glorifying, lifting up. And it doesn't look like a golden calf, but it is. And in that moment, I am worshiping my family. And God says, I want none of that. This idol making that you do. For any of you that say, you know, gosh, what's going to be best for my career? In that moment, your career is your golden calf. Uh, what's going to be best for my reputation? What's going to be best for my future? What's going to be best for my pocketbook? You know, all these things. We put these things and we lift them up and we've given gravity towards those things and we're glorifying those things. And Moses says, no, I want you above far everything else. He says, your presence, God, your glory is at the heart of what it means to live. Reflect on that for a moment. What are you glorifying on a regular basis? I'll ask it a different way. If this thing was taken away from you, what one thing, if it was taken away from you, would you say, I, I, I just can't go on anymore? Your health, your reputation, where you live, a spouse, a kid. You see, there's good things in life. When we take that good thing and we make it the thing, it all begins to unravel. Moses gets it right and he says, no, no, no. You know what? It's, it's your presence that matters more than anything else. And here's what's amazing. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead in biblical history and come back. Uh, they still end up in the promised land. But God goes with them. So God says, uh, there's two paths. Uh, you can either go ahead. Well, he doesn't say this too bad. He says, there's one path. Go ahead. Go to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. Moses says, no. All I want is you. And so what does God do? He leads him to the promised land. So I have so many people tell me, they're like, well, you know, what college should I go to? Uh, what job should I take? Uh, who should I say yes to when they ask me out on a date? You know, all these really, they're, they're important, significant questions. But what is a far better thing to focus on isn't the, the destination. It's, God, I want your presence more than anything else. I guarantee you, you will not make a wrong decision in life if you started with, God, I want your presence more than anything else. No matter what, what doctor I go to, what school I go to, where I move, where I'm going to invest my time, God, I want your presence more than anything else. I want that to supersede everything else. That is the glorifying presence of God, and it will change your life. And every time you lean into that, you, you, you change the course of your life and human history. Because God had no idea, or I'm sorry, Moses, God had every idea. Moses had no idea <laughs> how God would use that. Fallen out. So you've got the presence of God's glory. What's so fascinating is that the word presence is the word panim. It's a great word, panim. It literally means face. And I'd love for you to read later. Open those Bibles back up. Take a look in verse uh, 11. Read this section later. There's this moment where uh, Moses, who is the author here, says in verse 11, thus the Lord used to, past tense, 
the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. There was this thing called the tent of meeting outside the camp, and God uh, would appear in a cloud over the tent of meeting, and uh, Moses would go out, and he would have a conversation with God face to face. That was before the whole golden calf incident. So they're in the wilderness. Imagine speaking with God face to face as one speaks to a friend. And this thing happens. God says, you can go. You can get the blessings, but I'm not going with you. Moses says, no, 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 I want you more than anything else. And God says, okay, let's do this. And then Moses says this. Take a look in verse 18. Moses says, show me your glory, I pray. Show me how much you matter. Show me your significance. Show me your gravity. Show me the right place that you should be in my life. Show me your glory, God, I pray. And God responds and says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. This is the name that God gave Moses in the burning bush that couldn't be consumed. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But... Things have changed. We used to meet face to face. We used to talk as one talks to a friend. But now you cannot see my face, for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. You will only thrive before the face of God. But there's this problem now. When I aim for the wrong things, when I prioritize the wrong things, the the, the word is sin. When I aim for the wrong things, it puts me in this this difficult place where God says, I want you to be in my presence, but you can only have my back. And so what happens? Moses says, I'll take it. I'll take your presence over anything else. Even if it's your back, I will take it. And the whole history of the Hebrew Scriptures is the nation of Israel interacting in a very personal way with God, but to the back of God's glory. All the religious activity is personally relating to God, but but it's to the back of God's glory. And what's so fascinating is that not only did Moses come down with the Ten Commandments, he also came down with some architectural plans, plans to build the tabernacle, where God's presence would reside. And over the many years, that tabernacle was built larger and larger, and it became the temple where God's presence would reside. But there were all these rules, there was all these regulations, and no one could see God face to face. There was these rare moments, like when Jacob, even earlier, saw God's face, this amazing moment. But from then on out, people didn't see God's face. Now, it's so fascinating. Whenever I talk about how we've been created to glorify God, I, you know, I have people say, gosh, that sounds so 
like self-absorbed on God's part. I mean, to truly make the statement that you were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, you might think, well, that guy, that's, that's kind of, is he like insecure? Does he like need me to glorify him for him to be right with himself? I mean, how many of you have ever, well, how, the, how many of you have a friend <laughs> that has said that, right? Right? Yeah, I've, I've said that. If God was unipersonal and said, you have been created to glorify me, if he was just one person, that would be uh, very self-absorbed, selfish, and actually we should want nothing to do with him. But God is not unipersonal. He is tripersonal. One being, three persons. We refer to God as God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And we actually have a little uh, a window into that relationship when Jesus prays for all believers in John 17. Why don't you turn there real quick. In John 17, you get this amazing picture of this this triune, glorious community of one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And it gives us a little picture uh, that God is actually not self-absorbed, not selfish, uh, not insufficient, needing us to glorify him. Because in John 17, it says in verse 22, Jesus is praying to God the Father. He's praying on your behalf. If you've said yes to Jesus, the glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and God, you and me, so that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me, this is every Christian, may be with me where I am to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the truth is this. God does not, a commun not, does not need a community of people to glorify himself. God already has that community. It's called the Trinity. And for all of eternity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have been glorifying each other. Saying, you are so significant. You matter. You have gravity. I, I, I want to affirm your attributes and your gifts and who you are. And there's this community of, of glorifying one another. And God doesn't say, I need it from humans. He says, no, I'm going to create humans because we've got so much glory, so much beauty, so much joy, so much peace. We've got to share it. And the amazing truth is that God doesn't need you to glorify himself. He knows that you need his glory. That you'll never live into the fullness of what it means to be human without God the Father, Son, and Spirit as the great epicenter, the, the massive thing that you revolve your life around. So there's this need for all of us to experience the presence of God's glory, but we're in this stuck place where uh, the religious activity only enables us to experience the back of God's glory. But here's the amazing thing. Something happens. And it's why we're here. In John 1, it summarizes it so well. Take a look at this. In John 1, with this great backdrop of needing to be in the presence of God, of God's presence dwelling just in a tabernacle, just in a temple. 
And John 1 says this. Verse 14, and the word, this is Jesus, became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Scripture says that God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, the presence of God was experienced. People got to see the front of God's glory. And that's the truth of the gospel. There's this amazing thing that all of a sudden we get to see the very front of God's glory in Jesus Christ. And wherever he goes, he refers to his body as a temple, which was so just, just so counterintuitive and it just infuriated people. And he says, you know, I'm going to let this temple be destroyed, but I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And people missed it. They didn't catch it because he was trying to say that, that God's presence dwells in me permanently. Now, here's the amazing thing. If you march all the way forward to where we get to this moment, where we started in the very beginning, in 1 Corinthians 6, it picks up that language of temple. Why don't we go there again, where we started. It says this, in 1 Corinthians 6, The Apostle Paul says, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now, what's so interesting about, you know, the English language is it can be misleading. Uh, and in fact, in this passage, uh, I was taught that What's being said here is that you drew, you, you know, your body drew. Your body drew, it's God's temple. So don't smoke, don't do drugs, take care of it because, you know, your body is God's temple. Uh, and it's kind of easy to think that, you know, you know, DJ and Shanna and Mark and Krista and, and, and Kevin and, and Shirley and Walter and, uh, you know, each of you, you, you know, your body is like a temple. So we've got like a lot of temples in this room. And in fact, out of it, the Enlightenment period where we moved away from a communal view of the world to an individualistic view of the world, we began to read this verse through an individualistic lens. And even the, uh, the NIV, one of the English translations of the Bible, says that don't you all know that uh, your bodies, plural, are temples of the Holy Spirit, kind of perpetuates this. Now, how many of you were raised or have thought or been taught uh, that your individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Put your hands up. You are wrong. <laughs> you are so wrong, and it's destroying the church. I can't impress upon this to you enough. I've messed this up. You've messed this up. We've messed this up. It is destroying the church if we believe that lie, that we are individual temples. Because what that does is it causes us to look at ourselves and we don't need each other. And it completely distorts the message here. In the Greek language, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't y'all know, anybody from the South, all y'all, there's, there's a plural you here, it says, don't y'all know, all y'all know that your body Singular 
Don't you all know Christians throughout history and throughout the world? All of you, don't you all know that your body, singular, is a temple? And in 1 Peter, it says this, that don't you know that you are like living stones and you are being built together? Jesus is the great cornerstone and together you make up the one temple. So we've wasted all of our energy focused on, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat and I'm going to, you know, get fit and I'm not going to drink and I'm going to stay away from things just for myself. And what we've missed out on is that how we treat one another, how we love each other, how we pray for one another, how we encourage one another, how we bear one another's burdens affects this great one temple of which God's presence is experienced and we believe the lie that we can do this thing with Jesus on our own. And we don't gather as a church body. And we don't see the need for other people. The moment people get frustrating or, or weird or, or this or that, we, we flee. And a temple is only a temple if all the stones are being built together. You cannot be scattered stones throughout the world. Jesus uses this imagery throughout all of Scripture, in fact. We are one body. We are one temple. We are one light of the world. We are one city on a hill. I've messed this up so much. And I've missed out on participating in this amazing life that God invites me into. And I've got to turn. The, the biblical word is repent. And I've got to say, God, not only do I need your presence more than anything else, but I want to experience your glory face-to-face -face through a relationship with Jesus. And you can glorify God in every single decision of your life. And when you start with this, Jesus, I need you. God, I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. I want your presence more than anything. Jesus, what can I do here? How should I act? How can I forgive them? How can you give me the patience? You see, all those moments are ways in which you glorify God. And there's an amazing result that happens. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to the end says this, that as you do this, you're going to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ through the power of the Spirit. You know, I almost have this picture when I read 2 Corinthians 3 that it's almost as if God still has God's back to us. Because in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, it says that we reflect God's glory. Um, it's been reflected to us, you know, off of a mirror. It's interesting language. And so I have this picture that God's back is to us, but longs to look at us, longs to, to bring us in, longs to gather us, longs to just shower us with his love. And the only way is because we have... God the Son, who is looking right at us, who I just, I, you know, I just think so visually, I just, I imagine Jesus just looking over the shoulder of God saying, come, this is all of God's glory, all of God's goodness, all of God's beauty, and I'm reflecting it to you. And what's so amazing is this, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says this, that don't you know that you were bought with a price? Jesus took all that glory and he emptied it. He took all that power and he emptied it. And he went to the cross and he died for you. And he took all of it that he had for all of eternity. He spends it all so that he could face you. 
that he could give you that glory. He could share with you that glory so that you would matter. You know, we talk so much about us glorifying God, but do you know what is the center of God's universe? You. You matter in God's eyes. You are so significant in God's eyes. You, are, you have so much weight and, and, and gravitas in God's eyes, so much so that, that he would lose his life for you. Paul says, when you can take in that truth and it melts your heart, then in response you can glorify God in your one body, church. This is challenging. And Jesus says, gosh, if you just hear these words and they bounce off, gosh, you're building your house on sand. But do the hard work. Let it sink in. Open up God's word later on. Say, God, I don't know what to do with this. This guy up front was whack, but there's something there that I, there's, I don't know. What, help me find, figure out what is it. What do you want me to put into practice? God says, yes. Don't waste your time just listening. Let's get to doing, living out, being God's glorious people. Let's pray. God, so much here, and I feel like I butchered it. And what I love, God, is that you are God and I'm not. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would take your words, that you would filter it through my human attempts to try to wrap human language around the most glorious, weighty, significant thing in the cosmos, that somehow, God, you would get through all of it to the hearts of those here, including me, to woo us back to yourself. So God, would we never settle for anything less than your presence in our lives? Would we hunger for your glory? And God, we thank you that you tell us in Revelation 22:4 that one day in your presence, the new heavens and the new earth, one day again, we won't just see Jesus face to face. We'll see you, God, face to face. May we hunger for that. May we long for that. May it change how we live in love today. In Jesus' name, amen.